Hi everyone, thank you for joining us today for the fifth and final module of the SDA Adolescent Webinar Series. Today we'll be focusing on athletes who are elite at a young age and how they can prevent injury and absorb the daily training demands. I'd just like to introduce our presenters today and I'm going to start with Professor Belinda Beck who joins us from the Griffith University School of Health Sciences and Social Work and the Menzies Health Institute in Queensland. She heads up the Griffith University Bone Densitometry Research Laboratory and co-founded the Bone Clinic, an innovative translational research facility and clinical practice providing evidence-based exercise for patients with osteoporosis. She's a graduate from the University of Queensland and the University of Oregon and has completed a postdoctoral research fellowship in the Stanford University School of Medicine. Her work primarily related to the effects of mechanical loading on bone with focuses on exercise interventions across the lifespan for the optimization of bone health, prevention of osteoporotic fracture, and the management of bone stress injuries in athletes and military recruits. She's currently leading a number of other large trials examining the effects of vibration and high intensity resistance and impact training in older athletes with low bone mass. Belinda will be followed by myself. Um, bit awkward to introduce myself, but I'm an accredited sports dietitian and have worked in elite sport for the past 15 years across a range of settings. I've worked at the Australian and English Institutes of Sport with national sporting organisations and across a range of professional teams. I'm based in Perth and currently lead the nutrition servicing of pathway athletes at the West Australian Institute of Sport. In addition, I've got experience working with male and female development athletes across several professional sports, including tennis, cricket and AFL. Before we cross to Belinda, I'd just ask you to post any questions you'd like. Please feel free in the chat box. Um, we're hoping we'll have time to get to them at the end of this presentation. And we ask that we post your questions in writing so that if we do run out of time, we still have the capacity to get back to you and answer them afterwards. This webinar is being recorded and we'll load it onto the Moodle platform post-event. And I'd now like to hand you over to Belinda. Thanks, Beth. I shall share my screen. It does not appear to be, is it sharing? Yes. It is. Um, and is it on the correct screen, the adolescent bone health screen? It's just. We've just lost it. Oh, I see why. Yes. Okay. Perfect. So uh, as, as you can clearly see, I'm going to focus my talk on adolescent athlete bone health. But uh, for the most part, I think you probably see from what I say that there isn't a heck of a lot of difference between adolescent pediatric and adult bone health in terms of what affects it and what's beneficial and so on. So, so let's just get stuck in. So the, the best place to start is to just give us all a bit of a grounding on the trajectory of bone health across the lifespan. And um, as many as you would know, we, we actually do grow most of our bone uh, in the first two decades of life. And there's a difference between male and female. Um, can you see my cursor there, Beth? You can't see the arrow? No? Okay. Um, I might see if I can find, find the pointer. Can you see the pointer now? 
exactly right. Uh, so you can see the same trajectory for males and females, but men gain more bone than women, mainly by um, virtue of their size, really more than anything. Bone density is largely the same. Then there's a period of um, sort of leveling off and to a greater or lesser extent, depending on the person, uh, after which there is a gradual loss towards the end of life in men. In women, it's not so gradual because uh, the withdrawal of estrogen and menopause uh, results in a really rapid uh, loss of bone mass around about the mid fifties, uh, lasts for about five to eight years. And then again, a sort of a more gradual loss towards the end of life. Um, this means that at the end of life, women have lower bone mass than men, not just because of being smaller from this peak bone mass effect, but because of losing weight throughout life. And of course, that means that they're more at risk of osteoporotic fracture. Now, most people accept that this is an age-related phenomenon. Uh, being a, an exercise scientist, I'm uh, not sure that I 100% uh, accept that because you can see that this loss of bone across life also reflects the loss of physical activity. And in fact, if you do um, maintain levels of physical activity through life, there is some, in, some suggestion that you can maintain uh, your young adult bone mass. Now, it's very difficult to do studies where you can do an intervention for whole of life to, to prove whether this is the case. So most of these come from observational data, but it does make sense when we see the effect of um, exercise and, and loading of bone. Now you can see that um, I have actually got a somewhat lower extension of this arrow in women than for men. Men, I've taken it straight from the sort of the peak. Women, they're irrespective of how much exercise you do, there will always be some loss related to estrogen. It's such a powerful hormone. So what if we do add in exercise across the lifespan? I think it's very well established now that uh, one of the strategies for improving um, bone across life and reducing your risk of fracture at the end of life is to maximise your peak bone mass. So by adding in exercise, it sort of has the effect of um, creating a more male bone profile for women. And obviously for men, it will increase that even more. So this is the effect it, uh, exercise during childhood is going to increase peak bone mass and uh, again I've sort of added in my um, my suggestion that if you maintain the same level of exercise that you do in uh, in young childhood and how many of us do that uh, we may actually have a much more optimistic trajectory of bone throughout why is this important? Because you can see from this plot that just by increasing your peak bone mass, one standard deviation, you'll, you'll probably end up in a situation at the end of life where after losing bone, if it is inevitable, you might end up in a situation where you are above the fracture threshold, you never actually become osteoporotic and so you can um, avoid a fracture in your lifetime. So this development of peak bone mass in childhood and adolescence is really, really a vital strategy. Osteoporosis is not considered to be purely a disease or a condition of old age. It is a condition of uh, uh, childhood. So how do we know that bone, uh, that exercise is good for bone? Mostly, um, we learned about this by looking at uh, by observing the bones of athletes. So this is an example of a 21-year-old um, male rugby league player. And you can see uh, that 
see very well there's a little dot right right almost off the plot uh, which is showing that his BMD score is three and a third uh, standard deviations above the mean which is this middle line here so this fellow has bones like iron they're probably also larger than the average uh, person and so if he was to follow the trajectory even if he stopped playing rugby league now and he lost bone across life you can see that everything well above this osteoporotic osteopenic range and not at risk of fracture most likely so we've taken an understanding of the effect of exercise on bone to begin with on these sorts of observations. And if you apply that to all the different kinds of exercise and uh, sports that um, adolescents and adults play, you can see that there is very much a, um, a cascade, if you like, of bone mass from the athletes with the highest bone mass to the athletes with the lowest. So this is really um, a dichotomy between athletes with bones that are uh, of higher BMD, they're probably larger, stronger, less at risk of fracture, um, and others that are very fit, strong muscles, and uh, certainly we would consider them to be uh, in better shape and less at risk of fracture than others. But we can see that unloading th uh, through uh, taking away weight bearing is not actually necessarily that great for so we'll see some examples in a second. But this is all from observational data. This is just from scanning uh, individuals who are athletes in these sports. And we know that that is inherently biased because of self-selection. So for example, a gymnast reaches the elite level because they have strong bones and they haven't fractured. Now, that may be because they've developed them during gymnastic training, but more likely there's a very large genetic contribution. So the elite people in these sports are most likely genetically blessed. And so the um, whole body uh, uh, benefit of exercise is about 10%. Uh, and at the, at the specifically loaded sites, it can be as high as 20%. But if you actually did a gymnastics intervention with a, a bunch of sedentary people, you wouldn't get this kind of effect. So the, how do we know then that exercise interventions do actually improve bone? And if we look at the animal research, this is probably the best place to start because you can really control the, um, the other conditions. We know from Ruben and Lanyon's work in the, in the mid eighties, that there is a really distinctive dose response uh, effect of loading for bone. So if you unload bone, you lose bone. If you maintain your daily loading uh, profile, you'll probably maintain, um, unless you go through menopause. And if you overload bone, then you will gain bone. And we, we see this over and over again in the animal data. More load, more response. And what does that actually look like? Well, this is um, a really extreme example of a turkey ulna. Uh, that has been really overloaded carefully over time so that it hasn't caused fractures. And you can see this really incredible modeling response that is osteoblastic deposition of bone, new bone, without any resorption of bone. It's just putting more bone on the outside of the, the periosteal surface or bone, which makes this a substantially stronger bone, much more resistant to bending because it's broader. So it's a it, it's not just a matter of bone mineral density, 
it's also uh, it's effective modeling adding to the shape and size of bones what else do we know about exercise loading and how do we know that it's effective it's because if we look at studies of racket sport players and we compare their limbs we can see that the limbs that actually have the increased bone are the loaded limbs so if you look this is a very old study that compared uh, right and left limbs uh, or dominant and non-dominant limbs the control group did have a difference between limbs about five percent that's at the humeral shaft so their dominant limb was about five percent uh, greater bmc uh, than their non-dominant but when you look at the dominant limb of the ten tennis player you can see there's a 25 percent difference so this is a lovely example of how you can control um, for all those other things that that um, foul observational data show very clearly that exercise is a really powerful stimulus for bone. Now, what else do we know about uh, the load stimulus? Again, from Ruben and Lanyon's work, we know that if you load enough, if the strain load is high enough, you don't actually have to load very much. So this is a study that loaded um, the ulna, that turkey ulna I showed you before, over six weeks, either no times at all, and that's uh, the bone actually lost, uh, lost mineral content, or uh, four times maintained, 36 times here, and then uh, 360 and 180 over here. And you can see that really the benefit was gained at the 36. Point. There's a point at which bone um, saturates, the, the response to exercise saturates, and doing more doesn't really make very much difference. So what this means is that fewer loads are needed uh, to get this response. So running a marathon is not going to have any more effect than perhaps running the 400 metres. So heavy lifting just a few times is going to be more effective for bone than this kind of loading. What does this mean for swimming? Now, um, we saw on that cascade of bone strength that, um, that swimmers were right down the bottom. How do we know this? Well, uh, I do apologize, I can hardly see this myself. Uh, but what we're, we're looking at here, most of you can, uh, would be familiar with these forest plots from meta-analyses where a whole bunch of studies uh, the data has been um, filed together to increase the power of the statistics. So this is bone mineral density uh, effect sizes um, of swimmers compared with sedentary controls. And if you look at uh, down the bottom is sort of the, the total. And you can see for whole body, for femoral neck and for lumbar spine, there really is not any difference between swimmers bone mineral density during childhood and adolescence than people who don't swim at all. And in fact, there's a bit of a tendency for the spine to be lower. Now, if you go and compare swimmers with athletes participating in heavy weight lifting sports or e even just regular uh, weight bearing sports like soccer and so on, you can see that it does tend to shift towards the negative. So you can definitely see that whole body, femoral neck, specifically femoral neck and lumbar spine, actually lower than athletes who are in those weight bearing sports. 
do we know this uh, is an effect that we can intervene or again is it a case of lighter people being better at swimming and they gravitate towards it because they have low bones to begin with well we can really only tell that by doing animal research again because it's it's a it's a really difficult study to subject people to um, swimming and to to see if we make them lose biomass that's not something you get through an ethics committee so what they did with this study was with growing rats uh, they um, put them in a, a swimming pool and made them uh, swim a lot for 55 minutes, five days a week for 16 weeks, and look at the, looked at the effect on bone mass accrual. And you can see that the swimming rats definitely gained less bone. Now, this was a bit of a shock to me when I saw this one. So it's pretty much right at the age when uh, my daughter was doing a lot of swimming and, uh, and four days a week of heavy swimming training. Um, I thought was was going to be uh, not great for a bone, so we just made sure that she was also playing some hockey. Now, what about cyclists? Again, this is a weight-supported um, exercise, so not weight-bearing. Uh, this is observational data. What they did was scanned a whole bunch of cyclists, and then they split them into under 17-year-olds and over 17-year-olds. Now, they only had one plot in the paper, so that's why we can see an interaction effect here. But other than this femoral neck data, where the cyclists were a little bit higher, age 17, uh, but distinctly lower um, in adulthood, almost all of the other measures they took, including leg BMC, um, were lower in the cyclists, age 17, and definitely BMC and BMD uh, was considerably lower. Over age 17. So, um, definitely some cause for concern for uh, cyclists. But again, this is observational data. Are the lighter people better at cycling? Do they perform better? Do they stay in that cycling pool? In this study, uh, this group actually uh, decided to look at um, adolescents who were swimmers, footballers, and cyclists and to, to look at the, the effect of their sport over a 12-month period. So this is the closest we're going to get to a non-observational study. So they're 13 years old. And you can see in the middle here we've got football. So this is a heavy weight bearing, you know, probably also doing some, some lifting. Uh, this is very much a strength-related sport. And you can see that over the 12 months in all of these outcomes, uh, so total body BMC, total hip BMC, uh, we won't look at the horse triangle because it's a bit of a bogus location, but trochanter, um, arms and legs and so on, they're all gaining bone over the 12 month period if they're playing football. Not so much with swimming. Uh, so there's, in fact, there's a little bit of a loss here. A little maintenance effect here. The significance was only detected in the, in the, uh, the football. So none of these changes in the other swimmers, which is black, and cyclists, which is a darker grey, were significant, but you can certainly see this tendency for loss. And that, of course, is extremely concerning in a, uh, in a cohort that is as well as this. So what did they do they, when they saw this, of course, to, uh, concerning to them as well, and what they decided to do was add in some impact, weight-bearing impact uh, training for these guys. So uh, they're about 14 now. And again, we're comparing uh, swimmers, footballers, and cyclists. So nine months of jumping to see whether they could improve the bone in these swimmers and cyclists. Now, 
there's the the bars look different here because we're looking at um, change. So this is um, uh, change over these nine months. Now, the uh, footballers did increase to a, to a certain extent, but we have this interesting phenomenon in bone uh, in that uh, initial, initial values are very important. If you start with a high value, you're likely to adapt less than if you start with a low value. And that certainly seems to be played out here. You can see the swimmers and the cyclists all improved considerably just by adding in 10 minutes, three or four sets a day, three or four times a week of counter movement jumps with weighted vests. So this is really loading them up. Now, uh, this is having great effects, not just at BMC, but on the content, but also you can see that it is affecting cross-section area and cross-section measure. So these are measures or indices of bone strength. So that's the really important thing because this is going to be helping to prevent injury. And this is a, a cool um, image that shows the, the effect in, uh, you can see low to high bone values, red to blue. So the lowest is red and the highest is blue. In football, is not a huge amount of change, but you can see from swimmers, there's less red after training than saying the cyclists or blue after training. So this is showing where the bone is being deposited and this is going to have an effect. Now, a, a quick mention of peak height velocity, and I won't spend too much time on this because Beth will be talking about it, but in any discussion about bone growth, we do have to talk about this, uh, the trajectory of bone across childhood. Um, there is, of course, periods where growth is much greater. Certainly the first one is in the first year, lots and lots of growth from the newborn. But then the next uh, peak is at puberty. So we've got a massive injection of growth hormones and IGF and of course the, the big ones, testosterone and estrogen, all of those are growth accelerants. Um, this is a really vital stage for the growth of bone. And the only thing I really want to say, because as I say, I know Beth will be talking about it more, is it was a source of some considerable annoyance to me that the, um, the literature was was really off for many years in that um, there was a myth generated that uh, exercise pre-puberty was the most effective time to improve peak bone mass. And there was really not very much evidence for this at all. Uh, and in fact, a lot of the early studies had been misinterpreted and then people just began to recite. So it got to me enough that I decided to go to the literature and and amass all of the data and publish this position piece, exercise for bone in childhood, hitting the sweet spot, and showed very, very clearly the evidence is really, really clear that the most important time to target if you're trying to improve bone mass in childhood is during the pubertal years, not before. Of course, exercise at all stages of growth and development and of course throughout life is important but really if you want to get most bang for your buck we're talking puberty. All right can you have too much of a good thing and of course the answer is yes because we know that there is uh, that bone stress injuries are rife in certain sports uh, and some more than others so the top line here I suppose this is really where all the action is when it comes to bone stress injuries not only in, in the endurance running but in the military 
for slightly different reasons, but uh, some similarities, but for the same reasons as in greyhounds and, and, uh, and thoroughbreds, because of this repetitive. We also have this tier here of the performance and um, uh, appearance uh, related uh, activities where people are um, concerned about um, body fat and image. And so uh, it's sort of a, a perfect storm when you um, insufficient energy and, and overload of bone. So injuries happen in these kinds of sports. And then down the bottom here, of course, you would imagine that if you have heavy training in any of these sports that combine any of these aspects, repetitive running um, and, uh, and appearance, and also some of these um, team sports are also highly susceptible. Why is this? Um, it comes back to what it is that actually makes our bones respond to exercise in the first, first place. Now, from the image you can see here, and I'm going to, to focus on the tibia just more, partly because it's an area that I've studied um, most of my career, but also because the tibia is by far the most common bone to be injured um, with any, any form of bone stress injury. So what this uh, diagram has shown is sort of the exaggerated effect of bending when under load. Now, obviously, it's not going to look like this. We're going to make rubber, and it would be a really inefficient way to... Um, to for our bones to be constructed if, if they uh, bones were flexible like this, but they do deform a certain amount and their shape actually encourages that. So if you look at a tibia from the side on, you know that it has a curve, uh, a convexity anteriorly, as does the femur. And this is to actually encourage and allow for this bending to occur. Because when it does, the fluid that is contained within the bone is squeezed from one side uh, to another through the camelopili and the lacunae, and in doing so, it pushes over the top of the bone's uh, cells themselves, the osteocytes, and it stimulates them to, um, to signal for increase in, in bone. And osteoblastic bone formation, as you can see here on the surface of bone. So that's the adaptive signal. That's the reason why loading does make um, respond. Now this image is showing us why the injuries tend to occur when they do. So looking at a cross-section of the tibia from top to bottom, you can see the largest cross-section at the top, apart from down the malleolus, but still probably slightly larger at the top. And it progressively uh, reduces in size until roughly the junction between the mid to distal third right here. Now, years ago, when I was trying to explain this to my students, uh, why um, injuries happen in this region, uh, and trying to describe the, uh, illustrate the bending effect, I went outside into the garden, got myself a stick that was sort of the same shape as the tibia, and then bent it. And you can see where the bending occurs. It occurs at exactly the same spot at the junction between the mid, the mid to distal third at this narrow cross section. And that, of course, corresponds uh, to this area of greatest or most common injury in the tibia itself. So what are bone stress injuries? Well, there are many forms. They're not all stress fractures. Most of them start and end as periostitis, or some people refer to it as periostosis. Um, so what is happening here? 
the bone is trying to adapt to the load that has been formed. I'm not sure if you can see, but this is a, a, a bone that we have in our anatomy lab here that shows a really lovely area of, um, of periosteal deposition caused by these osteoblasts firing up. Now they sit underneath the periosteum, and so when they swell up and become very metabolically active, they're pulling on the nerve endings in the periosteum. So it is quite painful, and you can see this on a bone scan here where the periosteum is all fired up. Um, see the tracer uptake in that little hole here. And that is painful, painful to wait there and painful to press on. But if you continue loading the bone and it's not able to adapt in this way sufficiently to prevent um, continued bending to an injurious level, you do develop little cracks in the bone. So those matrix micro cracks, of course, they're going to be interrupting the little um, nerves, the nociceptors in the bone, and so they too are going to be painful. I just have this image in here of a piece of wire, which you know if you bend a piece of wire backwards or forwards enough, it does create these little micro cracks. It's exactly the same in bone. And ultimately, if you ignore it, if you don't rest, um, if you don't allow for some um, repair, uh, then a stress fracture or stress fractures will coalesce, all of these little micro fissures will coalesce into an actual stress fracture and the bone will break in an area, not necessarily the whole way through the cortex, but you'll then see it on a bone scan as a really highly focal uptake of the, um, of the tracer, uh, indicative of more serious injury. Now, it's not all about accumulation of micro cracks and coalescence of micro damage. The bone, remember, is trying to adapt to loading. So what it does is it begins to remodel, and sometimes that means that resorption happens first before um, formation occurs. But oftentimes, it remodels by resorbing the micro cracks in an attempt to fix the tissue. So in doing so, it actually opens up these pore cities. So it resorbs the crack, which is good, but the, the resorption canal will ultimately fill up with, with new bone. Um, but until it does, you've got this period of actually reduced bone mass. And you can see an example here where we've had masses of uh, resorption, lots and lots of resorption canals in this cortical bone. And you can, you can just see by looking at it that this cortical bone is going to be much, much weaker than it was before that resorption happened. You can also see resorption spaces on the surface of trabecular bone. So when is a positive and negative? The positive is the, um, is the, the loading. Loading is good for bone, but it does improve it. But it's a negative if it gets to a point where cracks accumulate and lots and lots of um, resorption happens. So you can see a nice healthy bone over here. But with cracks in it, you can see lots of resorption cavities opening up. This is actually a biopsy through somebody with a tibial stress fracture. And you can see all these resorption canals. You can also even see there's some periosteal bone that has attempted to lie down on top of that. Um, as the bone was trying to model and adapt and become stronger. But the problem was resorption cavities of these micro cracks have weakened the bone to the extent that when the person kept training, more cracks developed. More cracks, more resorption. More resorption, weaker bone, more cracks. 
So the positive that is actually a positive feedback cycle. And that's what many stress fractures are. So the, um, the image that I have in here is showing when most tibial stress fractures occur in military training. And they happen in the first part of military training for exactly this reason. We get firing up of the process of remodeling and then continued training and loading of the weakened bone causes a stress fracture. So now many, uh, I'm not going to dwell on the triad because I know you would have talked about this ad nauseam and it is really important. It does definitely contribute to your risk if you're um, an adolescent uh, female and even uh, an adult. Uh, but uh, I like to think of it as a continuum. It's not really a triad. If you think about these things as a, in a triangular fashion, you think that one affects the other, which affects the other, and it goes around in some kind of cycle, but it doesn't. It all stems from low energy availability, not getting enough in uh, to maintain circulating levels of estrogen. The minute you don't have enough estrogen, estrogen sits on osteoclasts and prevents many of them from resorbing. Those osteoclasts then become disinhibited and they resorb more bone than they should. Reducing bone mass increases our risk of fracture because the bone is weaker. So it is very much a, a one-way street in my mind and it's obviously the reason why to make sure that people stay in energy balance when they're training. And you can see very clearly that many, many um, studies have shown that people who have a menstrual disturbance, which of course is the first sign that many people have that their estrogen, circulating levels of estrogen are dropping, um, uh, increased risk of stress fracture with menstrual disturbance. And there's only one that did not show that um, irregular um, periods were associated with increased risk of stress fracture. But it's not all about the girls. Uh, this was a, a bone density scan from a fellow who was in a study I did years ago. He was uh, a varsity athlete at, um, at Stanford. He had been running cross country all through his teenage years and he'd been plagued by um, uh, stress fractures. Just prior to enrolling in my study, he had had um, seven stress fractures in the previous year. And when he looked at his bone mass, here's his score, way, way down here. So this is somebody who'd been running for most of his adult life and yet he had dreadful bones. This is someone who definitely would have benefited um, most likely from more energy, but also from a different kind of training because running clearly wasn't enough to improve his bone mass. He needed to do some heavier loads, fewer of them, after he had recovered from his um, stress fractures. He really needed some kind of brain. CSZ scores is, is over two standard deviations below the norm, age 20. So if his bones follow the regular trajectory, you can see that he's really going to be down in the osteoporotic range very So just to sort of sum up the um, basic principles of exercise for bone. First, we know that exercise loads have to exceed normal uses if you want to grow bone. It's got to be dynamic and varied. You can't just keep doing the same thing. Bone will adapt to it and it'll just stay there. Fewer cycles more frequently. Don't miss the window. The window is, is puberty. The effect is site specific. So only the loaded bones are going to adapt. So if you're a runner, 
your upper extremity. There's not going to be any, any more uh, dense or strong than a control. Initials values matter. That means if you start, start off low, you're going to respond more. Um, and certainly uh, you can see that effect with the swimmer cycle football study. So it's the same kind of concept, returns diminish as your bones get stronger, then they are more able to cope with the load you're putting on them. Then they sense that they don't need to be stronger and so the returns will diminish. As soon as your bones are as strong as they need to be for whatever you're doing, they're not going to adapt anymore. But of course, you have to keep using it. And that, that harks back to that original slide I showed you of the trajectory of bone mass across life. If you stop using your bones, you're going to lose it then. So I do honestly think it's less of an age-related effect, it's a sedentary effect. So the final slide is just how to avoid bone injury. And I came up with a very pithy comment. I was so proud of myself that bone wasn't built in a day. So I had to put a little, this guy is a, is a little um, bone carving from Roman times. Uh, it takes time for bone to grow. You cannot, uh, expect a bone to change its shape, its density, and its strength overnight. Um, and probably if you're dealing with somebody who has multiple stress fractures, that person has to go back to basics, start loading their bones in a very osteogenic way. They're likely to be uh, a distance runner, and they're probably not going to be able to do distance running for a period of a couple of months. And in that time, they need to be resting the bone and as they come back to running they need to be building the bone in healthy ways with heavy loads different kinds of loads slowly small numbers over the days you don't want to cause injuries during recovery the signs are always there um, normally athletes ignore them and particularly young younger athletes when they want to make the team and so they won't tell you that they've got sore shins or sore any other parts of their bodies, rowers ignore rib stress fractures, swimmers ignore ulnar stress fractures, but the, the bone will not uh, ignore them. And so they will be able to feel pain. If there is hot pain hopping on a, on a tibia, that person needs to rest before it progresses. Also, it, it could be um, point tender. If somebody already has a stress fracture, it's probably painful. And you don't even have to load it. Some people are more susceptible than others. If you have somebody who's a tiny little person, you can see they have narrow bone. You don't have to look at their wrists and ankles to know if somebody's got really bird-like bones. We've all seen people um, who, are, uh, who are built like this compared to their teammate who might be very, very robust. Uh, it's that person that's going to fracture, not the really robust person. But sometimes robust people do still have low BMD. And we saw this in our Titan study certain people who look like they're big and strong but their bones aren't great and that is genes. The minute somebody has menstrual disturbance that is a big red flag. You know, if it's as bad as disturbing the menses then that means that estrogen is low and that means that bone resorption is happening. Muscle weakness um, is, is also a flag because that um, muscle protects from the bone. We have seen those examples where if you just add in um, some brief and graduate and you don't lump them with 100 jumps a day, jump training, and particularly if you add in weighted vests so you're gradually increasing the loading, it really might benefit those athletes who are great.
Thanks so much, Belinda. That was <clears throat> fantastic and a very hard act to follow. Um, I know we do have a, a couple of questions, so I think I'll present very quickly <laughs> on my area and um yeah, I'm trying to get my cursor over onto the stop share button. It's So today, I was just going to have a, a bit of a, a chat, really. Some of the information that Blinda's sort of talked about relates to information that's already been covered in some of the previous materials in our adolescent webinar series from a nutrition perspective. So when we're looking at nutrition for bone health, I'd refer you back to the information that Pascal presented in module one. Um, and so today, I'm not really going to focus so much about that, but certainly um, refer to elements of it, as Linda mentioned, talking about peak, peak bone growth. Um, today, I want to talk about peak performance age, just some information on training loads and the impact of nutrition, uh, and a bit of a look at growth and the importance of monitoring growth as a dietitian and working with young athletes, and also just present a little bit of a case study uh, from a cricket perspective, one of the sports that I work with with very young athletes, where we do see very regularly uh, stress fractures. So peak performance age is often related to the sport that an athlete's doing. And it's important to acknowledge that we will have certain sports where our adolescent athletes are elite and our international representation level. We saw at the Olympics this year in sports like diving and gymnastics, where we've got very young athletes who are winning gold medals. So these early specialisation sports include sports like gymnastics and like swimming. We'll see very young um, competitors in international events in swimming. And so that has its risks of its own. We've got elite international athletes who are doing really heavy training loads in adolescent bodies. And that's something that we need to, to be really aware of. But we've also got the other side of the spectrum where we have sports where athletes will tend to peak uh, in terms of their performance at a much later age. And the challenge during adolescence is not overtraining them, but it's also keeping them interested and keeping them uninjured and avoiding overtraining and overreaching. So in a sport like athletics, the sprinters, uh, peak performance age of our sprinters will tend to be younger, but certainly for endurance athletes, it tends to be late 20s. And even we see in some of our longer distances, we have athletes competing well into their 30s and even their 40s competing at international level. Also in sports like rowing, uh, athletes might peak in their late mid to late 20s as well. So the challenge for elite athletes, even if they're elite at a young age, is that their time to shine or when they will be competing can be very different. And the challenge we have in keeping them healthy and keeping them uninjured, though, remains the same. We know that, that success to, tends to rely on being able to compete or being able to train and complete training sessions. So that ability to keep athletes healthy and training is in, integral. It's also a slight gender effect on peak performance age or looking at international competition and like the Olympics, where they've seen the age of athletes and when they are at their peak performance. So for males, it tends to be a bit older 
And for females, it tends to be slightly younger. Although interestingly, in the last Olympics, the peak performance age for females was had increased. And so athletes now across different sports, peak performance age tends to be a bit older. Probably one of the, the reasons for that is just that opportunities exist for females um, to compete longer um, than in the past, in previous years where, where athletes might have stopped to start families or have other avenues that they might like to pursue the opportunity there to be elite for females and to earn similar um, rewards to men is now greater but it'd be really interesting I think to see with some of the new sports that have been introduced uh, particularly if we look at the Olympics and we see sports like skateboarding uh, and some of these young sports break dancing and we see the types of athletes that are coming and, and the peak performance age what that does across the spectrum but once again quite sport specific to get an idea of what our athletes are dealing with, we need to really understand training load. And this is, I don't think as dietitians, we need to be experts in this, but I think we really need to have a bit of an understanding. Linda's referred to it in terms of bone, that the training load is so imperative to, to risk for athletes and, and injury risk. And we know that when athletes increase their training load, whether that be uh, in intensity, or in duration of training, we know that there's a significant increase for our young athletes in terms of risk of injury. And some of the stresses that training sessions that are involved in a training session are multifactorial. So we'll see the physical stress that's placed on an athlete when they're training. We'll see a physiological stress. We'll see a technical stress, often a tactical stress, particularly in game type sports, and also a cognitive stress as well. So we need to understand with our young athletes, I think it's important as practitioners to be aware that the stress of a training load is not just the physical stress that we see. And sometimes athletes have got a lot of different things going on that adding stress in their life that can all contribute to a load that leads to injury. So I think as practitioners asking our athletes, whether we be in private practice with, with athletes that are competing at a high level or whether we're in the MIN or NSO system, but being really understanding of what training load looks like and the different elements that contribute to an athlete's load. There's a great um, document that was put out earlier this year that looks at training load. And as I said, I don't think there's any need for us to be absolute experts in this, but to have a real understanding of the different contributions. So this was released in April this year by the AIS. And it's a document called Training Load in Relation to Loading and Unloading Phases of Training. I thought this was a really nice diagram. And just to show the different influences in training load and just to really understand that nutrition is actually imperative in several areas across this. So if we look, I'll just highlight a few here really, but nutrition is really underpinning how an athlete is presenting to a training session the physical state they're in, whether or not they're well fueled, and whether that be an acute situation or a chronic situation. Linda's touched on things like relative energy deficiency syndrome, things like red S, where we might see athletes who are undergoing training loads in a chronically um, underfueled state. But we might also see acute incidents of that as well. And it's really important that we understand the, the role of nutrition in that. Considerations also include things like injury and illness, where nutrition has a role. Um, lifestyle factors, where nutrition can be really imperative. 
And also, I think, obviously, the, the lecture we've just listened to has been an amazing example of the role of nutrition in the physiology and the biomechanics and how being how malnutrition or nutrient deficiencies and lack of exercise or even specific sports can lead to injury and how we need to be cognizant of that in relation to training loads. So nutrition clearly underpins all these processes. But the one thing that I'd like to mainly focus on today um, is growth, because I feel like this is, a, is an area that often gets sort of, um, we're all aware of it, but are we doing a great job of monitoring growth? And are we aware of perhaps the links to injury and how this exposes young athletes? I know I've certainly worked in sports where we've all commented about the growth of an athlete or commented that someone looks like they're, they're growing very rapidly, but that's as far as it's gone. We've sort of looked and commented. And today I'd like to, to give an example of how uh, growth monitoring is uh, executed in cricket, where we do have significant bone injuries. Just to, uh, I know that Blinda's already referred to this, to just a bit of a reminder. Obviously, if we're looking at peak height velocity, we're looking at the, the area in development, individual's development, where they have their peak rate of growth. So obviously in the first year of life, that is where it's the greatest, but we'll see differences for male and females when they are experiencing that PHV or peak height. So you'll see in females, it occurs approximately two years earlier, generally around 11 years of age. And if we're looking at males, around 13 years of age. There's obviously variation in when that occurs and that's something I'll talk about today. But there's also variation obviously in how much someone grows at that time as well. But I think a really important point is to understand if we're looking for peak height value, is understanding when it's occurring and monitoring and being able to, to really have records of that. Quite often it's an eyeball thing, but we're not really keeping a close eye on it. And I feel it's an area where as dietitians, we can really sort of step in and take over. It's an area of anthropometry that's really important in this age group and often underutilized. From a strength and conditioning point of view, this is some of the things that I have read. And I think it's important to mention that, that there is a bit of a, a belief that at the time of, of PHV or that rapid period of growth, that perhaps it's a period of accelerated adaptation. We've got this increase in androgens, um, an increase in fiber type differentiation, increasing creatine phosphate levels, obviously with increased lean mass. And I know I've heard strength conditioning uh, practitioners refer to this being a time where you can really see great change in athletes because of this. And so sort of changing training loads or training stimuli based on when an athlete's growing. But I think it's really important to be aware that perhaps what we should be more concerned about is some of the, the risk of injury associated with increase, increasing training load when our athletes are growing very quickly. So if we look here, I've just adapted this table from a paper by Wick and Sylvan, which came out in 2019. And just to give, just to give a, an outline of the definitions of growth and growth rate and what a growth spurt is, but also looking at maturity. And this is something that was touched on by Pascal as well in the online lecture and I'd encourage you to go back and look and she mentioned about the tennis stages but if we look here we've got the definition of growth rate of change in height over a defined time period and we have a growth spurt which is a period of rapid growth we're looking at the characteristics the period around or the most rapid period of growth is our peak height velocity phv 
And we also have the onset of menstruation and also our pubertal stages. What some of the research is telling us, and I think it's important, there's very obviously different, different effects in different sports, but we need to be aware that proposed relationship to injury in sport, if we think of things like young athletes who are growing very rapidly, and we think of some of the things Belinda's talked about already, we have some athletes who perhaps have a low bone mineral density, it might be based on the sport that they've been competing in, might also be based on their nutritional status while they're undergoing large training loads, but we need to be aware that it can be a risk factor for injury. Some of our athletes might experience reduced flexibility, reduced neural control. There's different things going on when the body's growing very quickly. And we know that we need to be careful about injury around this time. Also need to be aware of maturation and where a person is in the maturation process at any time point. So while we might not feel very comfortable about talking about secondary sex characteristics, and certainly um, that potentially can be quite confronting and skeletal age, difficult to measure, perhaps measuring growth and peak height velocity and being aware of peak height velocity is a way that we can assess when someone's nearing maturity, along with some of the things that we might be observing or some of the questions that we do ask. So we know that we've got some immature structures, bone can be immature, cartilage, we have a developing brain, uh, young athletes can be vulnerable to concussions, underdeveloped neuromuscular control, and perhaps a mismatch in biological age between athletes. So we're seeing athletes of the same chronological age, but who look very different in their appearance. And that offers, perhaps if we're looking at contact sports, an increased risk of injury if these athletes are competing against each other. But also one of the issues will be, if we have athletes of very different um, maturational age or biological age, then perhaps we've got different injury risk at different times. So treating athletes as individuals during this time becomes really important. So how do we determine peak height velocity? How, how do we do it? We could simply be measuring really regularly, measuring our athletes growth, but perhaps given how often we see our athletes, if we're in a private practice setting, we, we might be missing it. Quite often our athletes might only measure once a year if they're not really aware of it and we might miss this period and we might have athletes who've been injured during this time. One thing I would encourage you to do when measuring height, encourage athletes if you're seeing them to keep measuring their height, seeing if they, they do have periods of rapid growth rate. But a really important thing is if you are in a, a setting where you are able to do measurements, Complete them yourself or at least minimise variation between people measuring and sticking to proper Isaac anthropometric um, techniques is really important. We see some huge variation and noise in the measurement of height. If we want to use this to get an idea of how our athletes are growing, it's really important that we're getting accurate measurements and as consistent as possible. I think a, a really interesting point is that growth, our growth charts are probably something we use with young children when babies are born we use our growth charts and when children are young we're, we're tracking fairly carefully but as athletes get older we tend not to use them in a in a clinical setting or certainly not use them as often and whether that be private practice or even if you're working in other environments our growth charts can give us so much information so I think if you're not someone who's really looking at growth charts or, or using them with athletes, I think it, it can be a great thing to pull out and have a look at again for a variety of different reasons. 
just putting this up as an example of the difference that we can see with athletes based on um, a difference in their peak height velocity or the age that they experience, that this is two individuals who are involved in a really large anthropometric study and really similar age. They were actually born one month apart. So at 11.4 years, uh, boy A was 4.7 centimetres taller and 6.2 kilos heavier than boy B. At 14 years, he was 25.8 centimetres taller and 13.7 kilograms heavier than boy B. So really marked difference at the same age. You'd say at 11.4 years, they would be visually different, um, but somewhat similar. Whereas by 14 years, there is a marked difference in these two individuals. Yet by 17 years, there was less than one centimetre difference and less than two kilo difference. And if we look at their peak height velocity, one experienced this at 13 years, boy A, while boy B experiences at 15 years. And I think that's really important information. We can have an athlete reach the same endpoint, but they grow, they're potentially growing at very different rates. So how can we get an estimate of when PHV of peak height velocity might be occurring? As I said, we could be measuring routinely and actually picking it up if we're measuring month by month, but we don't always have the capacity to do that. And so in, Mer in 2002, Merwald and, and colleagues decided to, to see if they could use some of the anthropometric data that was already existing, see if they could work out a value that would perhaps give a prediction of when peak height velocity might occur. And that is the maturity offset value. So they looked at a really wide range of anthropometric measures and different measures and developed a series of different equations to see what actually gave the best information about when PHV was occurring. So they, in their pool of information that they had, they actually had great longitudinal data and a really large number of female and male subjects. And they knew when peak height velocity was occurring. So they could work out regression equations that gave them the closest answer that they knew to be true. So looking at things like gender, chronic, chronological age, date of measurement, standing height, sitting height and weight, they developed the maturity offset value. So it took them a variety of different attempts at the equation to come up with the equation that worked best. But I think what's great about this is we've got a, a bit of a predictor about when PHV might occur in our athletes. And the PHV and the offset, um, the maturity offset value actually gets more accurate the closer someone gets to PHV. So it's recommended if you are calculating this that you do it perhaps three to four times a year. The equations themselves are a bit of a struggle. This is the maturity offset value equations that were developed. The easiest way to do this or to calculate PHV, uh, sorry, the maturity offset value is to use an online calculator. If you do want to give it a go, here are the equations themselves. But it is using those uh, indices that I mentioned earlier. So as a simple measurement of height, sitting height and weight are the, the main things that will dictate they are gender specific, as I mentioned as well. So the, the equation for females and males is different, but this gives us the maturity offset value and a predictor of when peak height velocity might be occurring. 
and that can help us tailor our training plans or at least be aware of when we want to monitor our athletes more closely. There are plenty of online uh, calculators where these formulas do sit online. So if you're interested, I would encourage you to, to have a look and enter your data into those. As I said, limit noise by having the same person measuring. The concept around this is really that leg length grows first and that's followed pretty closely by torso length. So if you're seeing, seeing a period where the ratio between leg length and torso length is becoming shorter, if that ratio is decreasing, then you're getting closer to PHB. So just a quick look at a case study. I know I'm very aware of time, just in cricket, I'll be very quick. Very common to get um, a type of fracture in our fast bowlers, particularly our male fast bowlers, uh, known as PARS fractures. So occurring predominantly in the lumbar spine, we get a majority of these in our fast bowlers. And we had a couple of years ago in the cricket setting that I work in, we had over 50% of our young bowlers who are under 16 were entering our program with a PARS fracture. So realising that this was a, a really critical issue and we were athletes are experiencing these fractures very young uh, and we wanted to have a look there are a number of variables that affect um, the injury risk for this and the first and the most important is the training loads that the athletes are under quite often we have athletes training twice a day uh, or we'd have athletes who are asked to play two games in a day or multiple games across a weekend in different teams or with younger athletes we would have them playing multiple sports so playing cricket and footy at the same time and, and training loads were very high. Quite often with fast bowling, it's the technique, the technique of fast bowling itself, particularly at high speed, um, the, the stress it places on the lumbar spine by the, the mere action is a risk factor. And there's also just genetics that plays a role too. But a number of these things we thought that we could do something about and certainly are areas where nutrition plays a role. So I won't go through them, but I think we understand them. Energy balance is key. We worked really hard. We would have young athletes turn up to training um, who hadn't consumed food after school or across long days in our uh, four-day matches. We might have fast bowlers who get a bit anxious or don't like to eat when they're bowling and we have really low energy intake across the group. And we know that we'd see low energy intake because we'd see athletes' weights drop quite significantly once they increase their run-ups and are in their fast, sort of um, exerting more energy in their full fast bowling action. We were aware that, that obviously these fractures were occurring around growth and maturation and perhaps around PHV, and we weren't really doing a great job of recording that. Um, fatigue is an injury risk factor. Injury risk factor can alter technique and can cause other issues. Fitness was obviously a protective factor and nutrition plays a role in all of these. If we can get our athletes stronger, if they're fitter, if they're not entering training sessions or matches fatigued, then perhaps we'd have a better chance of avoiding these problems. And so we were mostly seeing these, these athletes, as I said, these injuries were occurring before they would enter the program at 15 years of age. They're actually occurring quite young. And so what... Cricket Australia put in place, and I will mention my colleagues here who work in the nutrition space, who do this routinely, and Michelle Court, who is involved in implementing this, will get regional athletes to measure their own height regularly. 
um, to try and attain and get an understanding of PHB. So we'll teach regional athletes how to measure their height accurately and try and do them routinely so that we can see if there's periods where our athletes are growing. For our metropolitan athletes, they get measured monthly uh, in the training environment. Um, and we certainly uh, measure the maturity offset value so that we have an idea of when PHB might be occurring. And when it does occur, and when we're aware of that, training gets altered accordingly. So some examples are we have athletes who will decrease the number of times that they're completing strength and conditioning sessions. They'll be mindful of their bowling loads. Adjustments to training loads are implemented where required, and it's a multidisciplinary approach. We work um, with the physios, obviously, who are monitoring uh, what's going on and aware of injury risk. We work with strength and conditioning to monitor things. If you're sitting in private practice and you think this might be something of interest working with your athletes, I would recommend that you start utilising growth charts in private practice. They can be really useful and perhaps something, as I mentioned, that we use when we're younger, but not when our athletes are a bit older. We sort of forget how valuable they can be. We'd say if you want to do these measurements, make sure you've got a reliable stadiometer uh, in your private practice and an anthropometric box or something of a, a set height so you can measure sitting height. Uh, encourage athletes to return for regular calculations of the maturity offset value. I think it, it's great if you can talk to parents of these adolescent athletes about their growth and about some of the things that might take place and some of the risks from an injury perspective. And it gives us an opportunity to engage with athletes, parents, and other practitioners as well, which can be really useful. So that's all I've got. I know that we had a couple of questions. We have gone five minutes over, so I'm aware that we probably had some people leave, but I'll go to those questions now quickly, Belinda. I know that's both for you. Uh, the first one came from Erica who asked why running was included in the list of non-weight bearing sports or at increased risk of low bone mineral density. Why is it that runners tend to have low bone mineral density? Yeah, that, that was a um, probably a, a misrepresentation on my part when I got to that slide. Running's not, not a, a non-weight bearing sport, obviously, but it is definitely in that list of um, activities that is associated with lower bone mass. Now, this is because there's a misconception on uh, the impact associated with running. You know, if, if we're out of shape and we go for a run, it feels like running is high impact, but it's really not. It's not much higher impact than walking. So um, by comparison, something like, a, you know, volleyball, basketball, gymnastics, it, it's way less than that. Um, it's also um, a, a case that, if you run your whole life, I can guarantee you your bones will be better than somebody who hasn't run all their life. So I'm not saying running across the board is bad for your bones. However, running as an intervention is not an effective um, stimulus for bone, particularly in later life, um, as a, compared to uh, like a heavy lifting regime or something. The only other reason why running is probably in the same um, group as those non-weight bearing sports like kayaking and swimming and cycling is because it, it uh, if you're talking about endurance running which mostly we are when, when these injuries occur um, it is done to extremes and it the re repetitive loading is like that piece of wire i was talking about you're just you're stressing the material more than is um, it's able to cope with 
So you're more likely to um, initiate that repair process and set up the positive feedback cycle. And if your uh, energy intake isn't adequate to um, put a lid on those osteoclasts, uh, then you're going to increase your risk of fracture. So running is obviously weight-bearing, but it's not actually associated with high bone mass. Oh, great. There were two more questions, and I quickly scribbled answers to them. Um, the, the skipping one was, was an interesting one. Yes, it is jump training, but people tend to do it very bouncy and not impacty because it, impacting is painful. So if you really want impact, you, you need to focus on doing higher, bigger jumps, heavier landings. Um, definitely skipping, yes, it's impact, but the more attenuation you do with bending knees and things, the less stimulus you get into your skeleton. And then the other question was about estrogen and uh, a simple way to explain it. Osteoclasts are uh, inhibited by estrogen. And that's why we lose so much bone mass at menopause. You take away estrogen and the osteoclasts go crazy for a couple of years, chewing up a lot of bone. It, the same thing happens in, in sort of drought situations. Um, and it, it seems to be a, a way to prevent people from getting pregnant during a drought. So um, not eating enough reduces estrogen in the system. Same thing, taking away that inhibition of osteoclasts so that they begin resolving more bone, more bone loss, weaker bone, more risk of fracture. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Belinda. Really appreciate it. And thank you everyone for joining us across our webinar series. Um, a short survey will appear on your screen when the webinar finishes, so please take the time to complete that. And remember that you can log your SDA CD points for today, um, 10 points for any of the lectures across the series. Thank you very much, everyone, and thank you for taking part in this webinar series. Thanks, Beth.